Well, as I made it clear, or tried to make it clear, that this, the realities of eye surgery and its aftermaths have made for an interesting week for me. In fact, I'd say more than just an interesting week for me, life has been interesting for me. I mean, getting old is not, you know, it's no great honor to be doing, you know, the aging process. But interesting stuff really is part of what it is to age and the reality that you, you know, doctors can change your whole way of functioning with a simple procedure that you aren't even aware, at least a while back, that I really needed. I had no idea really how bad my eyesight had become, but the fact that cataracts are now removed, and um, it's really made quite a bit of a difference in how I perceive just the world. I'm seeing the world in, in new ways. I walk into a store and I'm sort of stuck um, as uh, people are... Um, looking to move me along to get me through a line, get, me, get my, my groceries paid for. My eye get fi- gets fixated on the fact I never saw the numbers uh, or the, the, the um, screen um, where your purchases are recorded on the cash register. Uh, it's been years since I've seen it. <laughs> and I remember saying to one of the, the, the girls, I said, man, that's really nice font that you have there. That's very impressive what I'm looking at. And that's what my week has been, just looking at things in a different way. And uh, that's been very fascinating. It's been very interesting. Uh, the downside is that with the convergence of the eyes, I'm just having a problem uh, sustaining an ability to read. Um, but hopefully with the second surgery and the other eye, that's going to be... Um, less and less uh, as they look to put something that will help reading in my right eye. So um, what I thought to do in Sunday school this morning, since I, I would just like to do a little bit more uh, reading on uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians, particularly in, in the, cha- the latter part of chapter 6 with the quotations, and then as, and as we move into chapter 7, um, maybe to put that off a week if we can. And so I thought we can do one of two things, open the class for questions that you might have um, and if you don't have a question then I have a backup plan so um, let's open the class anybody have a question you'd like to raise in our Sunday school discussion yes Small stuff. (laughs) Well, okay. Um, You know, there's one of two ways to approach those things. Um, You can approach those subjects of limited atonement, effectual call, and free will from the vantage point of making that to be the centerpiece of your theological vision, the centerpiece of your understanding. And some of us have been there. We know what it's been to have those things when we first learn them, that they're in the Bible, become central to our vision and our understanding. And I think when you do that, you get a distorted vision. I think those are truths you have to see within the larger context of the constellations of truth that are found in the scriptures that all Christians tend to see readily and not to make these things the centerpiece. Um, and when you do that, uh, I think you need to have some simplistic uh, ways of, I shouldn't say simplistic, just easy ways of looking at those things and, and at the points where they make a difference with what other believers are seeing. Um, 
again, with respect to the will and its abilities, whether it's free or whether it's bondage, you know, there's a sense in which our wills are free. Nobody is putting a gun to our head, to, uh, uh, making us choose the things we choose. We choose freely in accordance with our natures. That's, to me, the, the whole point of um, the understanding of the will is that the will is often not the thing that leads in decisions. Desire leads in decisions. We do the things we like. We do the things we desire. We always seem to find time for the things we really like and we really desire. Um, Other things maybe we don't desire as much as we should and hence they're easily dispensable. We don't put them to the forefront of our, of our, of our thinking. Um, and it's that reality of the will subject to other factors of our nature, of the things we love and, and delight in and desire that ought to bring us to see that in one sense we choose freely. We choose in accordance with our desire, the things we love. Um, and then in another sense that limits the range of the things we will choose and hence our will is captive to our nature our will is captive to the things we delight in you can choose sooner change your, 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 your delights than change the things that you choose and you really can't change the things you delight in I mean I'm not going to turn around tomorrow and become a um, uh, a fan of the uh, Seattle Mariners. Uh, just, it, it's not happening. It's just not happening. I have no affinity for or delight in or relationship to a team that plays out in Seattle, which is probably the furthest in distance to where we are here in New York. And I've just been too long a Yankee fan in this part of my nature to root for the home team. Root for the home team if they don't win, it's a shame, is something that is just part of how a lot of us look at things. Um, I am not about to become uh, uh, a connoisseur of um, I'm trying to think of a food I don't like um, I've tried to give foods a chance in recent years it's been less and less and less but uh, uh, let's just say beef liver let's just say beef liver Some, a lot of people just could not even consider eating beef liver it's something that is repulsive to their natures and you can say, well, you're free to choose to eat beef, 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 uh, beef liver. But uh, in comparison with that, if somebody puts a lobster before you and you're a seafood lover, there's no question what you're going to choose. You're going to choose the things you delight in. And so it is with the things of God. We are captive to our nature. And our natures are fallen. And so to say, well, you're perfectly free to choose holiness and truth and righteousness. Well, Jeremiah addresses that thing, that the whole situation. I think it's in Jeremiah chapter 10, when he says, can the um, leopard change his skin? Can the, I'm sorry, the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian, the definition of a Cushite, which is usually translated Ethiopian in English, but it's Cush in the, in, in the Hebrew. Can a Cushite change his skin? Well, a Cushite was uh, a black person. A black person cannot change their skin. They can't say, well, I'm tired of being black, so I'm going to change my skin today. Nor can a leopard change his spots. And so Jeremiah says, neither can you who are accustomed to do evil do that which is good. Evil is your nature. It's your habit. It's the thing you're accustomed to. 
is a thing that readily you run to. I think of how the uh, Isaiah speaks about uh, pulling sin and iniquity is with cart ropes. I mean, it, it's just something that adheres to you. It's something that's part of you. It's something that um, you labor for and because you delight in it. It's what you want. Uh, you can't cease to do evil and learn to do good in and, of, in and of your own nature when you're accustomed to do the things that are evil. Although God's word tells us, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Yet the reality is it's only when our hearts are changed, when God t- takes the heart of stone out and puts in the heart of flesh, that we can choose what is good rather than the things that are evil. And when the Spirit works in us, His sanctifying grace. So, again, I would just simply not really argue with someone about the whole question of the ultimate decision of being a Christian, whether it rests with God or whether it rests with ourselves. I just encourage people to consider it's not easy for people who are accustomed to do evil to do the things that are good. And we all recognize that. We all recognize that evangelism in a fallen world is a very difficult thing. And in our prayers, we recognize the need for the intervention of God, do we not? The intervention of God's grace. We don't say, oh, I'm going to be a preacher, and I'm really encouraged to go out into the harvest and labor for the Lord, because the will of people are just going to respond to me readily. No, they won't. (laughs) Their wills are, are, are disposed against you, not for you. And your confidence and hope can't be in the will of men. It must be in the power of God. So to me, that's the practical way in which the freedom of the will needs to be discussed. It needs to be discussed in a very practical way of how we approach evangelism and what we trust in. We're simply not trusting in the human will. We're trusting in the power of God. So, I mean, that's how I I would discuss the subject of the human will. Rather than trying to make it part of a whole system of theology in which you try to just nail down every point in terms of a systematic presentation of of uh, reformed, the Reformed vision, you get it bit by bit, you get it block by block, and hopefully then it comes together for people. And then with respect to the matter of the atonement, um, I think it's important to recognize that, um, well, just a couple of things. Um, first of all, with respect to the extent of um, God's work of grace and salvation in the New Testament, the the, the change or the transformation from Old to New Testament brings an inclusion of people who were not formerly the people of God. And so when the Bible speaks of the universality of the salvation of God, and it does speak of the universality of the salvation of God, more often than not, their concern, the Bible's concern, is that transition from God. Now, not being the God of the, of, of, of the Gentiles, becoming the God of the Gentiles. Paul says in Romans, 4, Romans 3, is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Well, that formerly was not the case. I mean, in terms of you know, God's sovereignty, he, he rules the nations. But the nations were not his worshippers. They were worshipping other gods. In these times of ignorance, God overlooked. Paul says in the in chapter seven, uh, 17 of, of the book of Acts, um, God did not send the message of the gospel to the nations as he does in the New Testament. So the universality of um, the salvation of God is, is really 
the, in, the, the in, engrafting of the nations into the people of God is that Christianity is this universal religion it is a universal religion with outposts in every kindred tongue and tribe uh, in which God will now form for himself a people and so when the Bible speaks of the universality of the atonement many times it's just that that it's referring to is not referring to the fact that Jesus died for every single person under heaven with reference to their being saved. And again, maybe that's, I need to, need to pull back a bit. And to recognize that apart from that understanding of the universality of salvation being Gentile inclusion, the inclusion of the nations, um, there's also the question of the atonement itself and the question of what does the atonement do? What does the atonement achieve? When Jesus died on the cross, what exactly did his death achieve? And again, if you say too much on the subject, you end up with universal salvation. You end up with all people everywhere being saved. I saw this very practically in a witnessing situation where a Christian... um, um, witness of someone who was witnessing the gospel to an unbeliever was telling him how much Jesus loved him and how much Jesus died for them and Jesus paid the price for their sins and the fellow said well great that's nice that's wonderful I can go and live in my sins with that confidence my sins have been paid for Jesus paid for my sins Jesus died for my sins Jesus atoned for my sins good news and so I'll go back into my life with just that encouragement that Jesus died for me and then she says, the person has to go back and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, there's more to it. <laughs> you have to believe. And that's right. That's right. You have to believe. It's not just a question that the atonement itself provided for the eternal salvation of every single person under heaven, or else every single person under heaven would be saved. Doesn't that make sense? They were saying when Jesus died on the cross, he achieved reconciliation with God that's one of the things that the Bible tells us the atonement did that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto unto himself not imputing their trespasses to them now take that definition God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself that means enemies become friends not imputing their trespasses that means forgiveness has that been done for every single person under heaven? Well, Paul goes on to say, God's given us the ministry of reconciliation, and we implore you in Christ's name, be reconciled to God. This reconciliation that Jesus achieved at the cross, when God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, apparently wasn't reaching every individual until the gospel comes and implores you to be reconciled to God and you by faith become reconciled to God faith is that which appropriates the salvation faith is that which brings the salvation into the personal possession of every people so that what was done at the cross was not reconciliation at best you can say it's potential reconciliation but then, then if you say if it's a potential reconciliation and not a real reconciliation and that potential reconciliation was done for everyone, then the fact that it, we're the ones that activate it means that we're the ones who save ourselves. That's not ultimately what Jesus did, it's what we do. And that's why I think it's important to recognize that the atonement has a definite um, 
focus upon people for whom the saving act of Jesus at the cross was was achieved. Um, so you know that's where I would simply go. You're limiting the atonement one way or another. Uh, you have to limit the atonement because unless you have uni- unless, or else you have universal salvation. Because if you say the atonement reconciled, the atonement made it. Uh, the the you know, atonement itself means atonement. It means it, it actually expiated sin. It actually took away sin. So you have sin separating us from God. And what atonement does is atonement covers over sin. So that sin is no longer a factor in the equation. If that was done for each and every person under heaven, um, apart from faith, then you have universal salvation. The cross achieved universal salvation. If you say that Jesus at, at the cross was a propitiation for our sin, that's another biblical terminology used in 1 John 2.2 2 and Romans 5. Uh, propitiation, I'm sorry, Romans 4 uses a propitiation it says through faith in his blood so propitiation is something that at least is, is, is realized by faith we believe in the Jesus who died upon the cross a propitiation for our sins well, what does a propitiation mean well propitiation means an appeasement offering it's an offering that turns away wrath or anger the things that have disrupted a relationship who is that done for was done for each and every person under heaven was done for each and every person under heaven that every single person under heaven will be saved now if, if that's a biblical teaching I'd rejoice, I'd love to see every single person under heaven be saved but I know that the Bible doesn't teach that every single person under heaven will be saved and so therefore I have to understand the atonement of Jesus as having a definite object and the definite object seems to accord with the fact of an election of grace. That there was an election of grace, a people foreknown, a people predestined, a people uh, who are the people who are called, justified, and glorified. To think of Romans chapter 8, of that uh, picture of what often has been called that unbreakable chain of salvation. Who he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son and whom he foreordained he also called and whom he called he justified and whom he justified he glorified well who are the people that are glorified let's let's work it from that angle who are those that are glorified well it's the people who have come to faith and have persevered in faith and faithfulness and are glorified together with God's son uh, earlier on in Romans chapter 8 it speaks if if we um there's a conditional phrase there in Romans chapter 8 let me just get it in, in, in my mind um, Yeah, if we suffer provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him so we need to suffer with him <laughs> um, to be glorified with him so it's the people of God who have believed in Jesus who have the Holy Spirit of Christ in us who have received the spirit of adoption who are being conformed to the image of God's Son who persevere in faith and faithfulness those are the people that are glorified Um, but those that are glorified are the same people who are justified not a different people it's whom he justified he glorified 
says the people who are justified. Who are those that are justified? Well, we're justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not justified by the works of the law. We're justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who are the justified? Well, they're, they're the called. Who mean, who mean justified, um, he glorified, and whom he um, justified, he called. Those whom he called, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. So we're called. What does it mean to be called? Well, it means to hear the gospel. Well, yeah, multitudes hear the gospel and uh, they're called to faith but never come to faith. But there's a calling of the grace of God that unites us to his son. Um, God is faithful through whom we were called into the fellowship of his son. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 9. We've been called into the fellowship of God's son. It's more than just the calling of the, of the, of the gospel in which all are called to turn and believe and repent and find grace in, 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 in Christ. But there is this call of grace that actually awakens us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Um, and who are the called? Well, again, it's those who are foreordained. Those who are foreordained, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. And it's all referring to the same group of people. Um, so, you know, you are left with, uh, you know, I think a compelling case for the Bible's teaching of um, both the will in one sense not being free because we choose what we most desire, an atonement that does not achieve for everyone um, what it achieves for the elect. Now, again, it's not saying the atonement doesn't achieve something for the unsaved. It achieves the fact that God's shown his goodwill to a world in sin. He's provided redemption in his son. And we can freely call upon people to recognize that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And you're part of the world that needs this gospel. You're part of the world that needs this Savior. God's in the business of making new creations. He's in the business of saving sinners. And you need reconciliation with God. You need um, the work of new creation. So we can pro- proclaim boldly, this, this death is for you. <laughs> we can say that. This death is for you. Without going into the details of the fact that the death actually achieves for the elect what it, uh, something definite and something that's not true of all people everywhere. Um, and of course the objection again to the limited atonement is the alls and the everies of scripture and that's why I think yeah, I just have to point out that when you come from Old Testament particularism which means God is the God of the Jews into New Testament universalism which means the gospel is for all people everywhere that, that universal ter- ter- terms is speaking of just that, just that this gospel is for all people everywhere not for the Jews only but also for the Greeks and that's the universalism that the scripture is speaking about. So when you read God so loved the world, you, you, you're entitled to say, truthfully, God doesn't just love Israel. He loves the world. All peoples, in all places, in all nations. He sends the gospel to the nations. He shows goodwill to the nations. He gives a sincere, well-intentioned offer of himself and of his grace to every human being under heaven. 
the problem is not God's good intention. The problem is the human heart. So in love with its sin. So really at the heart of understanding all these things, I think really, is the reality of our state in sin as being one. So, so averse to the gospel when left to ourselves that we just, just simply wouldn't want the gospel if God didn't do something within us by his grace that brings us to see the beauty of Christ that brings us to embrace the salvation of Christ so anyway that's where I am so I, I would again and, and I would try to make my approach to un, unsaved people in saying as many things that all evangelicals agree on and believe in uh, which is universal good intention of God the universal love of God to a fallen world um, it's, I, you know, again, I, I've heard Calvinists or people of a Reformed background say, saying, well, God doesn't love, love sinners. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just not true. God only loves the elect. Don't go there. He makes the sun to shine upon the just and the unjust, his rain to fall upon the good and the evil. All those are manifestations of the love of God. Mankind, even in sin, is his image. And God does not treat humanity as if it was junk, as they say. That humanity has a dignity. Uh, Jesus said, um, you know, the sparrows that fall from heaven, are you not of much greater value than they? So there's value. God assesses value upon his people. He doesn't say they're garbage. You know, that's why when we sing the song... Uh, in our hymnals uh, beneath the cross of Jesus I like to tell people and it's been a while since I have I'll just remind you when we sing that hymn here I would prefer it if when we come to the part that says um, about the two things that we're brought to see what is it uh, help me with the line My eyes are, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in stanza one and I haven't got the stanza three. Let's look at it. Beneath the cross of I'm sorry? Yeah, on our own on worthlessness, I think is what it actually says. On, yeah. Uh, 180 something, right? What is it? Thank you. 177. Beneath the cross of Jesus. Okay. Here's the second stanza. Upon the cross of Jesus mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears two wonders I confess. I know there's two wonders. The wonders I confess. What are the two wonders I confess? The wonders of redeeming love and my own Worthlessness. Well, first of all, that's not how it was originally written. I don't know where that rendering came from, but I don't think Elizabeth uh, Coffane, who wrote the hymn, wrote worthlessness, unworthiness. And that's where it's in the majority of the hymnals, my uh, unworthiness. We're not worthless. We're unworthy. The Bible never says we're worthless. It says the opposite. But we are unworthy. And so, again, I think that there's a problem in reform circles where we become so um, centered in what's called the five points of Calvinism 
that we lose the sight of the thousands of other points of biblical truth because we're centered there. So, you know, hold to the five points, that's fine. But see it in the context of the wider constellation of truth. And when you talk to people about it, it's not the most important thing to get them on board, but just to get them to think. Get them to think. You know, I love Spurgeon's um, approach. Hear the, hear the scriptures. You know, if you if you honestly can confront these scriptures that seem to teach what Spurgeon believed they taught, and you come to a different opinion, having uh, you know prayerfully and 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 to some extent open-mindedly considered these things, well, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm I'm not going to make this the most important critical truths, but. Um, you know, I do think it's important to see that um, there are real problems with the other points of view. And, you know, that's what tends to happen, is that people who adopt a position, they always see the problems in the other person's point of view, and they don't see a problem in their own. So, you know, graciously and wisely, look to point out the problems of the other point of view, why you don't think that's sustainable with regard to the teaching of the Bible. But um, don't get militant over it. Be gracious and uh, respect the wider agreement that all Christians have upon the truths of the Word of God. Because I've come to love, I, I, at one point in my Christian life and ministry, I didn't have this opinion, but I have really come to love some of the, my Methodist brethren who I've learned from. And as long as they don't get into these issues, I'm really appreciating their insights in their understandings of things uh, that they teach. Um, So I want to continue to appreciate the insights. I want to continue to recognize that as Reformed people, we don't have a corner upon the truth, and we are part of a much wider community of the people of God that exist unto the ends of the earth that we need (laughs) we don't need to be at war with them our war is against flesh and blood not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers the spirit of darkness Um, it's those things we war against we war against sin we war against um, that's that's where the line we don't war against our brothers and sisters so we Embrace our brothers and sisters and love them. Some of us, I do, struggle with that, and you've talked to me about this a lot, worthiness and worthlessness. And there's something ingrained in me that I have to learn, is that I'm not worthy of God's mercy, but I have worth. Yes. You know, know, that's, I guess, just been very difficult for me to... I understand it up here, but to embrace from the heart. And that's, you know, I believe the Lord will help me with that. Yeah. Well, you're an eternal being. Yeah, I see see that. You're not going to be put on the garbage heap. You're going to be brought into eternal habitations. I mean, that alone ought to just overwhelm us with a sense of the wonder of the grace of God and of the love of God. And uh, again, sometimes we get caught up in these doctrines that have been discussed and debated uh, through the centuries, and we um, 
you know, I think total depravity is one that can kind of get us into a mindset that thinks that total depravity is true in all humanity. But it's not. <laughs> Christians are not totally depraved. Christians are regenerate. Christians are given, Jesus says in the parable of the sower, honest and good hearts. So you can't quote Jeremiah 17, 9 I think it is, and say that's true of Christians. When Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful 